0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Nicholas Romanoff. Romanov. I'm Olga Romanov. Michael Romanov. He said he was a Romanov. You know she's a Romanov. Checking in for Romanov. I'm Romanov. So tired of this Romanov shit. Nicholas Romanov. I could be a Romanov. He's
1: Romanov too.
0: Hello and welcome to Still Watching the Romanovs. I'm Danny Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson.
1: And I'm Chief Critic Richard Lawson.
0: We are past the midway point on our exploration of the Amazon series *The Romanoffs*. This week, we will be discussing Episode Five, *A Bright and High Circle*, written and directed by Matthew Weiner. And at the end of the episode, we will have an interview with episode star Andrew Reynolds. But first, before we get to any of that, Richard, I just want to like get your overall feelings on this already controversial episode.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh it, it, it's like kind of like remember the end uh the old promos for like Degrassi like it goes there. Like in some <laughs> sense it's like Matt Weiner went went there. <laughs> like right. like it's funny that we we devoted so much of last week's episode um talking about the real world stuff involving uh, you know accusations against him whereas then this this episode I feel like is much more directly grappling with that stuff um in a way that I think is kind of bad,
0: well, what's interesting to me is that um Amazon has been so enormously like helpful working with us on this podcast, and they sent me like so many of the episodes in advance, so we could do a lot of prep, but they held this one back until this week, and I don't know i I can't tell you why. Um, but I would suspect this is kind of why, um, is some of the stuff we're about to talk about here. Um, so is your, you know, your overall take when we were watching it seemed to be more positive than I think the place you're in right now. Is that, is that the case?
1: Well, it's funny. I was talking with, um, New York, uh, uh New Yorker f- uh, television critic Emily Nussbaum who had tweeted something negative about the episode, and then I sort of, like, took it to DM. And I was saying that I, I like what it's about, the episode, I, or, or partly about. Uh, I don't like how it's about that, though, if that makes sense. Like, there is an aspect to this episode that we can dig into that I think I've really never seen sort of so thoroughly explored on television. Um, and yet it's all in service of a sort of sneaky exoneration of perhaps Matt Weiner himself.
0: So um Emily tweeted out uh, on Halloween, tweeted out offensive and poorly timed yet incoherent, but also boring bonus points for wasting Ron Livingston and Andrew Rannells. I guess I should uh, do a little bit of premising for the episode. This episode Brighton High Circle is about uh, a mother. And a professor, Catherine Ford, played by Diane Lane. She is our Romanoff, our secret Romanoff in this episode. We met her in the previous episode. She's the sister-in-law of Amanda Peet's character from episode four. Um, we've got Ron Livingston as Alex Myers, her husband, who is like a, um, an, like a, a web app developer. Uh, Andrew Reynolds as their kids' piano teacher, David Patton, and then Cara Buono and Nicolari Parker as two other moms uh who also employ David. And the episode is about some vague, unspecified accusations, rumors, um about David surface when the police come to visit Catherine. Um and she spends the rest of the episode trying to figure out whether or not Sort of such vague, unsubstantiated rumor slash accusation, because we never really find out what exactly it is, um, means that she should cut this person out of her life or, mm-hmm. uh, whether, you know, it's not enough to cut him out. And she decides, you know, you know, whatever, spoiler for the end of the episode. She decides to keep him uh with her kids and not just like not just keep him teaching her kids but the episode ends with this very pointed like closing the door like not just keep with caution Mm -hmm. but keep with like you know implicit trust which i mean is actually like the hardest note for me as well in the whole episode is that closing the door at the end um so yeah
1: and kind of what it is saying about other things that are sort of <clears throat> meta textually related to the episode, but not actually what the plot of the episode is. Um, right. you know, and I think that it's key, uh, to say that, like, when Diane Lane's character is approached by this detective saying, you know, there have been some complaints or whatever, they did nothing, no formal charges, you know, I guess any, most people would, would jump to this conclusion too, but she immediately assumes it's sexual, you know, some sort of sexual yes. abuse, um, rather than something else, which it, you know, <clears throat> sort of proves to be, but, you know, and I think in, in that, that's Weiner getting, uh, getting into something that is interesting. Um, but, you know, he sort of uses an assumption that a lot of people have either consciously or subconsciously about gay men and children. Um, and uses it, I think a little thoughtlessly to, to, to sort of be like, Hey, like, you know, accusations, you know, they're, who knows? Really, ever it, was just, it could just be a joke or whatever, and and I think that that seems to be pretty pointedly related to his own life.
0: Absolutely, I mean, like there's no sidestepping the the parallels uh, between the, you know, things we've discussed about Matthew Weiner before on this podcast and the subject matter of this episode. But I, I do want to mention. Um, I want to get into like some specific uh, kinds of reactions because we have the different moms reacting in, in yeah. three three different ways basically. Um, before we get into that, I wanted to talk to you specifically about the fact that like David is a gay man, what that means for the various characters, the various assumptions that are made, and like how you reacted personally to that. And then, like so, to quickly say that like the Ron Livingston character Alex Alex. Um, has this has this reaction that like shocked me the, from the beginning of the episode? uh, This character of Alex like does not like David. There's a scene in the kitchen before any of uh, like the police come to visit Catherine, where like you know this the the dad of this family just. It, blatantly does not like this guy and i was like is this homophobia i don't know what this is i like you don't know why he's being so chilly and rude um to the andrew rannell's character um and then when Catherine goes to talk to her husband about this he goes basically he goes i knew it right i knew something and then she's like why did not you say anything he's like oh well you know that you don't want to like play into that stereotype of like gay men and kids and uh, you know Uh, here's where i will put my ignorance fully on display and say like i didn't know of course i should have known but i didn't like know really think about that being a thing um and and that makes me sound really stupid and that's fine um but like of course it is and of course i know that there are there like Something that Andrew Randall said when he talked to me is he, he talked about the confusion between homosexuals and pedophiles and how that that's just been like an inextricably linked sort of association for so long. And it's just not something that, um, that I had like, I, I guess I have the luxury of not having to think about that all the time. You, Richard, do not have that luxury. So like, what is that, seeing that play out mean to you? Well,
1: I, I think, yeah, I think that it's, <clears throat> there, I think it, there are a lot of reasons why Gay men are so frequently, again, either consciously, subconsciously, uh, actively, passively, um, associated with pedophilia because, you know, for a long time and may, and still pedophile, pedophilic men had a, a, easier access to boys than they did girls. And you'll, you see that in the church with like altar boys and stuff like that and, and were sort of more trusted with, ki- with male children than they were with girls. And so it became this thing. It was like, oh, you know, like it, it's, it's a gay thing. It's a homosexual thing. It's not. It's, it's sort of viewed, I think, by a lot in the sort of psychi- psychological community as almost like a th- another or sexual orientation. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but that is my sort of vague understanding of it. Anyway, the way that that has sort of pervaded into, I think, a cultural consciousness is that there is this kind of, mild question this wonder uh this this you know this little this the kind of little needling thing that's like I, I think when gay men exist in spaces that are sort of directly in near children or or, or, or sort of tangentially um that I think even the most progressive um people sort of straight people sort of fall prey to in a way uh and it's 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 a really shitty kind of pervasive but also vague prejudice and it certainly could be one that i um am projecting a little bit sometimes you know in in being nervous of being around kids because i'm nervous about what like the, their parents are going to you know like even with sometimes with family members you know children um i i i i make a note to you know keep a something of a distance not that i like actually really like kids that much anyway but like uh it's just a, it's a concern. It's, you know, and, and, um, it's, it's exhibited in ways both tacit and, uh, direct. And I think that the episode, albeit insensitively, talking about that topic from a place of some understanding, I think was, felt really rare to me.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's not something that is at all ancient. Um, because like, you know, since the episode raised it, and then you and I talked about it a little bit before we recorded this episode, I've been thinking about the. I remember the campaign in California around Prop 8, the um, you know, the uh, failed attempt to legalize gay marriage, and that happened before it, it was legalized later. But the propaganda around it, and I will call it propaganda, was like think of your children. And I even remember, you know, like this, I was in my early 20s when when Prop 8 was on the ballot. But like, I I just remember like, being so confused. I'm like, what does gay marriage have to do with your children? I don't understand. And now, like, obviously, that makes sense. And uh, like, the same thing is going on with like, trans rights and bathrooms. The main thing that's raised is like, think of your children. That line makes like a grain more sense to me, that connection line, but it still doesn't make a ton of sense. And now I understand that it's leaning on this prejudice that I didn't even really realize was a thing. To to be able to see that, to be able to see that represented um and just spoken, you know, I mean, spoken by a character who's not what is interesting about this episode, I think is the, you know, the Ron Livingston character of Alex. It's a little muddled to me, sort of what exactly is going on here, but like he's not a, he's not a like a bad guy necessarily quote unquote you know he's not like a villain just like dropping some like hardcore homophobia we were like oh that's a bad dude and I can like discount it he's got this like liberal guilt around the knee-jerk assumptions that he has Um this episode was originally meant to be set in the Bay Area but due to the fires that were here last year they uh, wanted filming in LA and so it's set it's weirdly set in LA but you can kind of tell that it was supposed to be a Bay Area story because they keep talking about Google and San Francisco and 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 all this sort of stuff like that. And the Bay Area, even more so than other parts of California, has this really interesting coexistence of like fiercely liberal ideals with like so much money. And with so much money usually comes conservative ideals. And so it's an, there's a lot of like virtue signaling and all sorts of stuff that goes on up here. Yeah, has been has been my experience so like it kind of makes sense to me that this that there are these rich people rich parents rich women who want to be seen as super progressive and oh no i've oh my god our fabulous gay piano teacher blah blah blah, but then can as easily as anyone else fall victim to certain prejudices you know yeah and i
1: think that I, i i i am glad that the episode doesn't do it with like you know uh, sort of you over the head like there there there's not this sort of direct like gay men or pedophiles thing it's it, it's subtler and thus m- so much more truthful in that you know i remember i was talking about something se- somewhat related to this um with a friend after thanksgiving last year uh talking about a, a relatives kid who you know may or may not be in the search and discovery phase, let's say. And, uh, and I sort of was talking to him and I was like, oh, I used to like, you know, like doing that when I, you know, like theater or whatever, when I was in high school and the way that my family member bristled, um, you know, uh, my friend was like, you know, the thing about being gay is that like, w- w- that talking about it is always R rated, you know, no matter what. And I think that for so many people, the minute that like the fact of your gayness is, exists in their head all of a sudden they don't like where it takes them and so they kind of back away and they and they kind of jerk away you know and and i think that the episode kind of illustrates that really well especially in that like <clears throat> look how willing they are to sort of go there they're like you know we we really we love him he's so good with the kids but like yeah you know that's who they are you know they just fall into that assumption so quickly because it's always there it's always very close i'm not saying for everyone but i'm saying that like even with like you know, friends, people I know well who are straight, some of them, um, if they, if they ask me about how I'm doing or like what my love life is like, they really want one sentence and they don't want anything more involved than that. Um, and I can see that it makes them uncomfortable. Of course, I might be projecting some, but like it's absolutely there. And so I think this episode's exploration of how gay people, particularly gay men, function in progressive, largely straight communities is well observed that said i don't like that it's well observed in front and in, in, in function of something else
0: that leads me into wanting to talk about this, uh, trio of reactions that the episodes sets up. Because you've got the Alex character, the dad character, but he's like somewhat preferable because he's always traveling because, you know, he's an LA guy whose business is all in Silicon Valley, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. but you have these three moms, right? So you've got Diane Lane as Catherine, Carabuono as Debbie, and Nicole Parker as Cheryl. And you've got three reactions where you've got one woman who is like immediately, no, I don't believe this. How disgusting that anyone would insinuate anything about this person. I am fully on their side. And then you have one woman who is immediately, get this guy out of my life. This guy is immediately a villain. I don't need to ask any other questions. This is it. And then in the middle, you have Diane Lane, who is genuinely in conflict almost the entire episode without uh, genuinely in doubt, right? Yeah. Wondering and, and conflicted the whole episode and, and just wanting to get, get a, a firmer sense of the truth before she makes any, draws any conclusions. And so she winds up asking each of her boys in turn if they, you know, know anything about this. One's in college, one's like a young teen and one's uh, much younger. Um, you know, and asking these moms what they know and really trying to get more information from the police who are, you know, legally bound to not talk to her. Um And so I find, I find that exploration of the spectrum of the way in which we react to things because we, as you know, even leaving the Matthew Weiner out of it, which we cannot possibly do because this is a show that he has written and created. Um, we have had so many other occasions uh Richard you and I, and everyone else to find out something about someone we thought we knew what you know as as much as we can know a celebrity or if we know someone personally mm-hmm. and um and how we've processed that reaction um for me, I think the 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 Diane lane path of like trying to get as much information as possible for drawing conclusions um feels like the sensible path. I think what we see a lot is the knee-jerk writing off someone. And we talked about this, obviously, with the whole, like, cancel culture conversation that we had. Mm -hmm. Um, The knee-jerk writing off um, I see less the, like, knee-jerk defense, though so you do see that. You see, like, you know, if, like, a comedian, say, gets, uh, called out for something, his comedian friends circle the wagon or something like that, you know? Well, but that's and the so- interesting thing.
1: It's usually about, it's more about protecting your own, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that the, there's a, a difference between, um, you know, the, 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 the moms and, and David, but, uh, you know, and yet still there is this one sort of protective response.
0: Yeah, it's, but it's interesting to me, like, I don't know, um, do you think that that is, like, uh, too ham fisted to make it just, like, three approaches and no, you know, one in a shade of gray and two extremes? Or do you think that that's well done to show these different dynamics?
1: Um, I mean, I would say that this episode is curiously, you know, I think that w- Matt Weiner has some, some problems in in the way he creates things, but I don't think that, like, being non-observant is one of them usually. And yet this episode feels it's in the writing of these women, like feels kind of stilted and like, not like it's, it feels like they're all kind of archetype archetypes and like, and, and, and avatars of a sort of idea. And I, so I think that it doesn't really work, even though I think you probably need all of those reactions in the story, if you want to sort of look at this issue the way he wants to look at it. So I guess maybe there was a more subtle way to do it, but I'm not sure what that would be in, you know, an hour.
0: Yeah. I've, I think I was interested in what, what else this episode reveals about the David character in terms of the different faces that he puts on for different people. Um, and the way in which the Catherine character is, um, Surprised to find out that he like goes on family trips with some people, or or that or that you know he has been lying about certain things. Um, she gets most especially affronted when she finds out he was passing himself off as a Romanov when she's Romanov, which I think is like, of all the things I like in the episode, this is kind of the thing maybe I like the most is that she seems, um, most upset, more upset almost by that than the other mysterious alarming um accusations that are in the water because like you know how dare you pass yourself off as a romanov i'm the romanov here um sort of being a, a a weird priority for her um but what what do you think of this idea this exploration of like code switching that this this episode has
1: i mean i think again that like i think that that's accurate i i think that the scene in the kitchen At Carabono's house, this, you know, sort of rococo ornate thing that he kind of makes fun of. Um, I think that's a little stereotypical, but I think it's absolutely, uh, true that, you know, people and any, but like I think queer people in particular, people, you know, people of color existing in largely white spaces, like, uh, that yeah, you put on different hats, you sort of, you sort of reveal, x amount to some people y amount to others i think making him a sort of pathological liar muddies that clarity a little bit obviously like it it, it makes him more of a sort of outsized character um but i think the idea that like a person in his position would be a, a, a altered depending on who he was interacting with makes total sense and um you know feels true
0: the way in which he, like, insinuates himself into whatever situation he finds himself in reminds me a lot of The Talented Mr. Ripley, which has its own, like, positive and negative associations about gayness. A lot of negative associations with gayness. Um, but in this episode, what I find interesting about that is, like, there are things that we know are, um, like, morally dubious about this guy. This guy's a liar. Like, this guy has done wrong things. And I think that that's interesting because it's not like the question then becomes of the episode. Like, it isn't, uh, is this guy a saint or is he a sinner? It's like, okay, this guy definitely has done wrong, but is it like wrong enough? Is it the right kind of wrong? Like, what, what is this, you know, what judgment are we passing here? And that, I guess, is where we bring it back to the Matthew Weiner um metatextual aspect of it where it's like Matthew Weiner as we discussed in a previous episode like has admitted like yeah I've said bad things to the people that work for me and I probably shouldn't have said them and he was like hmm but his argument is then you know but I didn't cross the line in this way and
1: yeah and he said know? that he was joking which is a direct thing that happens in in, the sh- in this episode which is like oh yeah maybe he made a joke to me about like blowjobs or something um, right and it's like well oh but like but he was just kidding you know and then ron Livingston kind of comes around on it i i think that's something also involving you know because that's information that Diane's character learns from her son who her, her eldest son who we see making out with a girl maybe in his dorm room bed maybe about to have sex with her thus asserting his straightness but then there's a little brother who you know is a tiny kid and then there's this middle teenage brother who presents maybe a little effeminately knows things about David's personal life, that he has a boyfriend, is very defensive of him. And maybe there is an implication in the episode that that kid is supposed to be gay, but they don't really go into that. Uh I wish that they had, and I think that had the episode gone into that, I think it would have been, then been more about what it's surfacely about. But again, Weiner was too distracted because he had to steer the story towards this exoneration of the rumored about uh, and the sometimes, sometimes inappropriate. And... um I, that's where the episode lost me, you know, in general, because I just, I'm like, you can't take this really personal thing for a lot of people and use it at, that, that isn't your experience and use it in this way to kind of, like, talk to some, you know, to some, some stuff about your own personal life outside of the world of the show. It just, it feels really unfair.
0: So something that I raised to you when we were initially talking about this episode is I was like, okay, you know, this link between... Um, accusation and, you know, homosexuality, I guess, made me think of Kevin Spacey. And then you wanted to draw like a really hard line between what Kevin Spacey did, which is this sort of like, you know, I was, I was, confu- I was drinking a lot and I was confused and I don't know what I did with that kid, but also, hey, I happen to be gay. And you're like, what does one have to do with the other? Like, and Mm -hmm. how dare you actually muddy the water by associating those two concepts? Kevin Spacey was sort of the reaction to that. Um, How is that, how is that distinct from what you feel like Matthew Weiner is doing in this episode?
1: Well, I think something I said to you over text is like, what frustrates me is that we know that Matt Weiner is a smart guy and we know that he, you know, whether on this show or certainly in Mad Men, uh, that he can be, a great observer and teaser out of emotional truth and um the way that people organize themselves with with each other either in a home or in an office and whatever kind of setting um and so he knows that i believe that he knows that this thing about david or about gay men and this, this kind of presumption is is wrong and 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 is is a is a widespread enough thing to to be you know kind of conscious of uh, for a you know straight guy who doesn't need to be, um, and so if he knows it's that big of a thing, to talk about it, but all really only actually be talking about himself and sort of you know bad beha- his bad behavior that he's not really actually interrogating, he's just kind of saying, "Eh, like I'm, it's I'm, it's not a big deal." I just feel like that feels really it feels a little exploitative, honestly, and. Um, uh, so it's why I feel so ambivalent about this episode, because on the one hand, I'm thrilled that that kind of really tricky stuff is being spoken about. And then, but also you realize toward the end of the episode, you're like, Oh, this is all just kind of this weird allegory. And him shutting the door or, or Diane Lane shutting the door, like for me brought to mind, like Matt Lauer with the button in the door, you know, like all this, like, it's like men are, don't worry, you know, uh, that just, ugh, it didn't sit well with me.
0: Um, the, the last thing I want to talk about, um, is this part with Ron Livingston's character where he has this interesting swing from like, from going from, uh, the I knew it person to later in the episode telling this odd, like, childhood anecdote where he, like, befriended a girl who, like, he thought was a boy, and all, you know, it's like this very, I just can't even describe it, it's so weird. And, um, which is all, like, a run-up to him giving this really, um, self-righteous speech to his boys and to his wife about, like, how judging someone, how going with the crowd and judging someone, um, is the worst thing you can do in the world, and how dare you. And, um, you know, to say like, we can't, we can't judge David this way because that is the, you know, my father instilled in me as a, as a child. That was the worst thing I could do. Uh, it's, it's incredibly heavy handed. Um, this, this like lecturing of the episodes message, which is then muddled by like his later reveal. He's like, yeah, that person was a girl. And then Diane Lane like gives this confused face that I shared in in that moment of like, what is happening right now? Um, what did you think of this? Of yeah, all of
1: this? I, d- I didn't like the flashbacks in general. I-, I I thought that like that didn't need to be. Um...
0: I kind of liked. I mean, I, I I will interject and say I kind of liked seeing what this guy had meant to her uh, revealed that way. Like, because yeah. we couldn't see it. We couldn't see it within the context of her doubt. Right. Um. You know, and so we had to see it in a different time. And so to see him both like, telling her that she deserved a nice house, which is like, whatever. Um, But more importantly, like the relief she felt when he was able to communicate with her child in a way that like other people haven't been able to that I thought was kind of powerful, actually, because yeah. that that relief, that gratitude, and then like learning to lean upon that person in that role. Um, you know, like just really underlines what a trusted part of, you know, this person's, you know, cause like not everyone in the world can relate to like, I'm sorry, what does a piano teacher mean to someone? Like what is, why is that like so important? And then it's like, no, this is, this is a very trusted figure in the, in the formation of her children's lives. So I, I did like that. But the, but the, but the flashback from, from the dad to his childhood was like yeah. extremely baffling to
1: me. Yeah. It was hokey and like not him and felt like oddly weird uh, in a strange way. Um, uh, it's funny though the piano thing. Like God, I, I think I texted you like I was having piano recital like horrible nightmare flashbacks. I, I took <laughs> I took piano lessons for maybe twelve years as a kid, and uh, uh, you know I didn't have a very close relationship with my piano teacher, but you know we would go to her house, and um, it, it's a it is a weird relationship. You know any sort of I mean it, it, akin to a coach or whatever. Um, but I thought he got that stuff well. And you're right, that the, 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 in establishing how these people interacted with him before this, this thing had troubled their, their, their opinion of him, um, is interesting. But, uh, yeah, the, the Ron Livingston thing, I just don't, I also don't see what that would have to do with this other thing, you know, like, yeah. um, well, I, I understand what it has to do in terms of, um, maybe the, the, in the episode discreetly, but like if we're bringing Weiner's stuff into it like that feels like why are you conflating those two things that aren't the same thing and also in terms of what what's been what david has maybe not even been accused of what like it's possible there has been a complaint made about like that's a very different thing that's a different kind of believing someone it's a different kind of not going with the crowd you know and i think that 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 associating those two things is well what a lot of men are doing right now frankly
0: so um this it sounds to me like your reaction to this episode is a lot closer to what some other people who have been more critical of the season as a whole have felt. Does this um you know like especially episode 3 which you liked so much, I think a lot of people found a lot of what we're seeing in this episode in that episode. Um like does does this episode's tone, uh, depiction, flavor your overall uh, reaction to the series?
1: It makes me a lot more skeptical of the project. Yeah. You know, I think that when you, when you look at this, now that we're, you know, now that I'm five plus hours in, starting to get a picture of the series in aggregate, it's like, uh, okay, like, you know, he's exploring wealth and class and, um, this and that, but like, is this mostly just like what Matt Weiner feel like he wanted to talk about, but was silenced, you know, and, and was given $45 million to do it? Like, because if that's the case, if we're going to st- keep seeing these breadcrumbs like back, that lead back toward him, um, uh, that's going to maybe, f- yeah, that'll, that'll negatively color my opinion of the whole thing, but I'm not s- selling it off yet, yet.
0: I will say i have a hard time finding any of this, any of the stuff that we see in this and the stuff that we saw in episode Three House of special purpose. I'm having trouble um seeing that in the upcoming episodes six and seven, both of which I've seen um I think especially episode seven is this is that's someone else's story. It's based on like it's based on a true story that happened to someone and it has nothing to do with any of this, and so like there are episodes upcoming that like are are sort of free from any of this. But I yeah, I agree. I mean, once again, I think it's very um interesting to me that this episode was held back from me. If if you're going to if you're going to give me most of the episodes of a season and hold one back, then like, you know, I'm going to look at it with a special interest. So, yeah. Here we are. Um that being said, I mean, I I think you disagree with me, but I actually really really liked uh, Diane Lane's uh performance in this episode uh, like it's 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 a tough role to sell I think because she's such a cipher she's not a cipher but she's just sort of like she's in a place of despite all her action she's in a place of sort of intellectual inaction and so because of that I think that makes her character maybe somewhat inaccessible but I don't know, she, she really worked for me in this. Um, yeah, I mean, I,
1: I, I, I like her and I, I think that f- for me, she felt a little miscast because I think that Diane Lane is a bit cooler. Then uh and I mean, like hip her <laughs> than than her character here, and and it has a bit more edge, like I think when you if when you see her, i mean in another sort of you know wealthy mother role as Pat loud in the h b o s movie about um an American family, the kind of first ever reality series, um you see some of that edge here here it's been it's kind of gone because she's supposed to be a bit like. Not flighty exactly, but sort of just like high strung rich lady, you know, and I don't know. I don't love her in that mode, but she's good. I think it's great to see Nicole Ari Parker get something to do. Carabuono, you know, from Mad Men is great. Um, and, uh, and, and Rambles, I think, did a good job with a role that I think is, tr- is, is really tricky, you know, just in premise, but also how it's written.
0: Um, that seems like a great, segue into our discussion with andrew reynolds who had i think his own um set of doubts and um revelations in being in this episode the run for revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture
2: i am fran libowitz um who should be the mayor of new york
1: we all support yeah. that we support that <laughs>
0: <laughs> very nice <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Cheer being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us?
1: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
0: We can. We can.
1: All right, here we are.
0: <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOC. Can you tell us what AWOC means? It means um AWOK, Anna Winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi, And I'm Chloe Mel, And we're the hosts of The Run Through Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWAP. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, Hello,
0: Hello. how are you?
2: I'm good, thanks. Thanks for chatting with
0: me. I wanted to kick off by asking you what your first initial reaction was reading the script for this episode.
2: Uh, initially when I read it, I was a little, uh, I'll be honest, I was um, sort of confused as to how I was supposed to feel about this character. About the character that Matt was asking me to play, which was, um David, the piano teacher. And I, um, I had to read it a few times to sort of unpack um, where I landed on that. You know, whether or not these accusations about him were true, whether we were supposed to think that they were true, um, how is, was there a way for me to, to play this that, um, you know, sort of left all of that up in the air, like where, where was the line there? So it took a, it took a few reads and a very long conversation with Matt to sort of figure out, um, that I felt like I was capable of of doing it the other big piece of it which is just a technical piece which is I don't play the piano right um and having to be a classical piano teacher I I just I've I've seen that sort of butchered in ways Mm -hmm. before on film and I was like I don't I don't want to be some like hack guy who you know looks like he's in the partridge family playing a keyboard like (laughs) I can't I don't I, I can't do that. So he assured me that they would have, you know, for the for the close ups we had a really amazing um uh, really talented classical pianist come in and he and doubled for parts of it. And then I also just had a really incredible coach that um I worked with a lot in here you in know, Los Angeles, um, to sort of figure out basically the fastest way to kind of like cheat my hands. Um certainly not that I could play any of that, but at least I would be sort of like hovering in the right area.
0: To circle back to that conversation you had with Matt about ambiguity, was it his intention that this episode be entirely ambiguous in terms of David's actions? And how did you decide to play that? Yeah,
2: I think that the, you know, obviously I had to sort of make a a, a choice as an actor. Like I had to sort of pick, you know, what I was playing at any given moment. So I made the decision that he hadn't done anything wrong, but he was still kind of a, um, a sketchy character for lack of a better term. You know, I mean, he, had, he has a lot to, he has a lot of insecurities. He has a lot he lies about he has a, or exaggerates if you want to be generous. Um, he uh, is desperately trying to fit into this group of people that he does not feel he belongs in. But all of that said, like, I I still didn't think he was really necessarily guilty of anything, but it it was a lot of fun from an acting standpoint to sort of figure out who he was at any given moment with any of the people that he was dealing with.
0: The Ron Livingston character has this line where he, you know, when he finds out about the initial accusation about David, he says sort of, I knew it. And then he has this other reaction about, well, you know, gay stereotypes, stereotypes about gay men and children or something like that. Um, And this is where I'm going to let my co-host Richard Lawson um, speak for himself. I I just want to quote his initial reaction to the episode that he sent to me, where he says, uh, the way gay men are embraced, but kept at a distance and always feared for the shit. It locates all the quiet trauma of straight guardedness around gay men, especially with children. It's so exhausting to be wary of kids and interacting with them. And I'm wondering if you had a reaction similar at all to Richard's when you were working on this episode.
2: Absolutely. Um, and I think your colleagues said that very well. Um, I think that my, I'll be totally honest with you. A large part of my conversation with Matt was, um, I think that there is a uh, often um, confusion, uh, and I don't. I mean, I think that there is some confusion between the difference of homosexuality and pedophilia in a lot of people's minds. Mm-hmm. That it, it, it's a and it's a tricky thing that I don't notice it so much anymore. But I certainly, you know, as a kid, heard comments about. Adult gay men and um I, there's some, maybe some sort of perceived danger there um and I you know I didn't think as a you know as a out actor who's also now playing a gay character like we really need to try to make that any more confusing for people who might be confused <laughs> um that there's any correlation between those two things um and I ultimately sort of came to the conclusion that your colleague did, which was, I think it is something that still exists. And it is an interesting, um, uh, conversation to be had. And, uh, it's a real, I think it's a, you know, with those lines that Ron's character has about him. I was like, well, that's probably very realistic, uh, in a lot of parts of the country. And I, you know, in the city that we were filming in, um, so I guess I just I wanted to I don't know I felt like it was a conversation that was that was uh, interesting and valid and hopefully uh, potentially per- particularly because of the end of the episode when Diane and character sort of she takes the leap of faith that everything is fine that she trusts this guy and that was a story that you know that was not ever validated and don't even know what the details of it are and that ultimately he has given them no reason to. To panic or to doubt him, um, and she makes the choice to continue on with this guy, and she shuts the door and she, you know, lets him stay in their lives. Um, so I thought that the resolution of it was interesting enough that it supported the argument.
0: The episode has so many references to the Bay, to the San Francisco Bay Area, um, but it seems to be set in LA. And I'm wondering, you know, what we're meant to take from the setting of this particular episode.
2: It was set in Los Angeles. You know, we were. It was written to be San Francisco, and then. Um Uh, The fires that were taking place last January in the Bay Area sort of prevented us from filming there, unfortunately. So at the last minute, everything shifted down to L.A. So we filmed the bulk of those interiors uh, in Pasadena. Um, In these beautiful, huge old homes. But you're right, initially it was written to be in the Bay Area, but everything sort of got shifted south, unfortunately. Okay.
0: Um, And because, you know, to go back to what you were saying before, because the episode deals so much in negative perceived stereotypes about gay men, how do you then, as an actor, calibrate your performance um, within an episode that are about stereotypes?
2: I mean, I had to sort of be uh, as clear as possible as to who this person was at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And he the sort of challenge for me was is that he changes his demeanor depending on who he's in a room with. So, you know, when he's with Ron Livingston's character, he, he very much tries to, you know, sort of be a guy with him. And then when he's with Carabono and Nicole Larry Parker, he's very much trying to be a catty mom. Um, and he's, he's constantly shifting and adjusting and trying to figure out who he is. So it was a challenge to figure out underneath that, like, who is this guy? Like, who is the, what kind of human is he? Is he a bad person? Is he a good person? Is he just a confused person? Um, so it was a lot to sort of, it was a lot to sort of sift through and untangle in, in any given scene. as to sort of where his head was, but, um, it, it also sort of, you know, I get asked a lot about playing gay characters because I predominantly on on television play gay characters. And isn't that limiting? And isn't that, don't you feel pigeonholed by that? And my response is always, it's only limiting if the writing is bad. <laughs> and this is a perfect example of... You know to say that someone's sexuality defines every aspect of their life is really reductive and very uh it's not true I, you know there's a lot of different types of gay people, and I thought i had never I had never come across a uh, a character who happened to be gay but was also this complex and a really with his insecurity and with his need to to fit in with these people and his desire to be to belong to this group, I had never um, I had never read a gay character who was that sort of complicated and kind of unlikable and um, and that was intriguing to me and also just you know made my point that just because a character is gay doesn't mean it's necessarily the same person. Right. Um, because that's that's always the assumption then it's like, well there's only one type of gay person, so it must be really exhausting just playing that person over and over again. Um <laughs> and this you know, made my point. That this is a really this was a weird one. Um and I had the opportunity to work quite a bit last year on different projects and and all of the characters, uh or most of the characters were gay and they were all very different. Um and it was really it was an exciting um exciting year as, a, as an actor to sort of go through and, and see that there's lots of different ways to play these people.
0: Well, and it's so interesting that you talk about the way, um, you know, David changes his persona as sort of like this code switching way in which to interact with different people. Yeah. Um, is there a moment or an interaction where you think that he is his most authentic self?
2: I think the only time that he really drops it is with, Catherine, with Diane Lane, when she's, it's when he's talking about why he, why he teaches, um, he's playing for her and he's explaining that he thought maybe his career would have gone someplace else as a performer. And then it, it did not. And that you find yourself having to make a choice at a certain point as an adult, you know, do I play on a cruise ship or do I play at a Nordstrom or do I start teaching? And he makes this decision to start teaching and really loves it. And I think that's the only time that he's really telling the truth, both to himself and to whoever he's with. Um, and the fact that he chooses to share that with Catherine, I think, is no surprise then that she ultimately decides you know, that he's a trustworthy person. And regardless of whatever these rumors are, she has no reason to doubt him. Um, but for me, that was the only time that I think he was really being...
0: Truthful. Obviously, this episode uh, is not coming out in a vacuum. It's coming out in a broader conversation about witch hunts and false accusations and the Me Too movement and all of that. Um, how do you feel this episode sits in that conversation? And um, what are you hoping people take from it? Well, I think, I mean,
2: I think if, if Diane's characters, you know, if she's the audience, you know, if she if she's representing the, the general viewer here, um, she asks a lot of questions. She uh, does the research that she feels like she needs to do. She, you know, she she's she goes on this fact finding mission of her own to sort of decide what she thinks is true. Whereas. You know there are people. I think that it's the episode is really is really well crafted. But like you know Caravano's character, she just immediately decides she's she's out. She doesn't. She wants nothing to do with David anymore. She doesn't want him anywhere near the family and the house. Nicole Ari Parker's character really doubles down and and defends him in a really um, a, 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 in a very energetic way. That she decides that there's not, that It can't possibly be true. Any of these stories. Um, but Diane is the only one who asks questions and she's the only one who uh, tries to find out for herself and ultimately she just she has to just make a decision um, and the fact that she makes a decision to at the end of the episode to close that door and to let the lesson continue and um, that uh, I think that's it's an interesting uh, and powerful statement about how we receive information and how we make up our minds for ourselves and um so I think there are questions that need to be asked, and there are conversations that need to be had before any decisions are actually made so um I think that's a. I think her, her character I think represents you know a version of perhaps what we all should be doing um when we when we hear stories, be it about you know I think you know be it about the elections or you know you you can't just read a headline, you have to read the whole article and um, I think we're in a, we're certainly in a, a moment right now where everybody is just reading blips of information and maybe not doing a deep dive. And there are certainly issues that you have to do a deep dive in.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. And tell your colleague,
2: thanks for the, um, the thoughtful question, because that was certainly on my radar as well.
0: Well, that is it for our discussion of episode five, Bright and High Circle. We will be back next week with Panorama which uh, and in a conversation with actress Rhoda Mitchell, who I have been a huge fan of ever since a Pitch Black. Uh, Richard, <laughs> in the meantime, where can people you find your work?
1: Uh, on VF.com and they can find me curled up in a ball having flashbacks to going to piano uh, <laughs> lessons having not practiced. Uh, where will you be and where can they find you?
0: Uh, you can, they can find me on VanityFair.com. They can find both, uh, you can find both of us over on Little Gold Men. Um, and then you can also find me going around lying about the fact that I've got a Romanoff Bible in my possession.
1: (laughs) You're lying that you
0: don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's the lie. All right. Uh, I'm going to stop. Romanoff. Romanoff. I'm Olga Romanov. Michael Romanov. He said he was a Romanov. You know she's a Romanov. Checking in for Romanov. I'm Romanov. So tired of this Romanov shit. Nicholas Romanov. I could
1: be a Romanov. He's Romanov too. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.